Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today, for episode 263, Parker Lewis of Unchained Capital rejoins me on the show. And we're talking about the greatest trick that central banks ever pulled on us and what that has done to money, our ability to save. And we also get into multi-signature with Unchained, as well as this topic of loans and living off your Bitcoin using collateralized loans, which is a very popular topic in our discussion circles these days. Greetings, Stefan Levera fans. This is Dread here, and I have some big news to share. Swan Bitcoin's new private client services division is open for business. So last August, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor kicked off the trend of companies buying Bitcoin for their balance sheets. A flood of high-profile investors and companies have joined him. Names like Paul Tudor Jones, BlackRock, Square, and Tesla. Swan Private exists to meet the massive international demand from thousands of companies, family offices, and high net worth investors from all around the globe. If you're thinking of buying between 100,000 and 100 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin over the next year, visit swanbitcoin.com private. That's swanbitcoin.com private. Fill out the onboarding form or email the CEO personally, Corey at swanbitcoin.com. That's C-O-R-Y at swanbitcoin.com. Respect fans and one love. Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin native financial services. And as you'll see in this episode, I discuss with Parker around how you can use multi-signature to have multiple locations with multiple devices on your keys. And if you want a hand and with setting up, they've got a white glove treatment. It's called the concierge service. Their team will ship you some hardware wallets. They'll teach you about multi-signature, answer your questions and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. And you get $50 off for using the code Levera. Unchained also offer an OT desk and they also offer business accounts which are great if you want to move your corporate treasury to bitcoin where you hold the private keys go to unchained.com to find out more are you interested in mining compass is an online marketplace which makes it easier for everyone to mine bitcoin and enhance the bitcoin network's security this is the anti-cloud mining option you buy your own asic and secure hosting at great facilities around the world. So for years, we've heard that mining's only profitable if you're investing tons of money. But now with Compass, everyone can tap into economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. So if you're unsure about how to get started, Compass offers hardware and hosting bundles, which helps reduce that need for technical knowledge and allows you to get started mining Bitcoin with hardware that you own. Go to compassmining.io and start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show. Parker, welcome back to the show. Stefan, great to be back on. Uh, appreciate you having me and look forward to the conversation. Yeah, so there's been so much going on in the Bitcoin space. I'm sure you guys are super busy over there at Unchained. And it's just a really crazy environment. I think it's worthwhile talking a bit about what brought us here and what are some of the ways we can sort of manage our way out, obviously, with Bitcoin being a big part of that answer. Um, it seems, you know, one of your recent pieces over on the Gradually Then Suddenly series was this whole idea of Bitcoin as the great definancialization. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what uh, what spurred that piece? So it's an idea that I've been thinking about a lot, but this idea that I think a lot of people sense it and it's difficult to quantify, but that one of the root causes of the financialization, in my opinion, and I, and I break it down in the piece, is 
that the actual monetary structure or the debasement of money that is engineered by central banks forces people into financial assets as a way to offset inflation. And that what we actually see is that, you know, not to, to a full extent, um, but that a lot of the risk taking is, is really not forced. And I, I think it's more akin to taking risk with a gun pointed to your head. And we don't know really truly how much malinvestment there is other than it exists um, as a function of the of the Fed and central banks all over the world, debasing money and forcing people into to, uh, essentially um, investing between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, and I, I was struck by this idea that it's central banks are essentially pulling this great trick onto the rest of the world that we all must perpetually take risk just to even stay afloat. Well, yeah, and that, that's a key theme uh, of the article, which is it's almost I, I try to articulate it in the piece, but I think it's good to talk about it as well. That um, this idea that I talk about, which is or explain that if you have money, then that is actually the end point of one cycle of risk taking. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that for you to have gotten money, you would have had to taken some risk before that, um, which merited somebody compensated for, compensating you for that risk. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean investing in a stock or a bond and having it go up in price and selling it for more money. It means that if you committed yourself to running a podcast or working on a Bitcoin project like Unchained Capital or you know investing and educating yourself how to play the violin and per- performing and going to Juilliard and then um, perform perform you know performing and people paying for that or someone like Russell Okung um, putting his blood, sweat, and tears into being a football player and then being paid for that, that, that basically risk is putting in time and energy to delivering some form of value to other human beings. And there's no assurance that someone's going to pay, pay you for that or that you're going to be successful in your endeavor. But that the end point of a, of a risk-taking risk cycle is somebody compensates you money. And then from that point in time, you shouldn't be forced into perpetually taking more risk, that that there's risk taking and then there's savings, and that in the Fed's construction of the economy, it essentially forces people into never ending risk taking, which if you multiply that or consider that on an economy wide or aggregate basis, it's incredibly unhealthy that we're all forced into that position by the Fed engineering. Um, and that the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that it essentially stops that negative feedback loop, that it allows people to have a form of money that works in their favor rather than against it. And if you um, just take that fly out of the ointment between money being engineered to lose its value versus not just the opposite, but just taking away that that says, let's just make it neutral and let's let the market decide that all economic incentives by that critical barrier become aligned. And rather than people perpetually taking risk, they get to benefit for the risk that they've already taken. And then the consequence of that as well is that every economic decision point that they come to in their life, whether it be from the investment perspective or the consumption, becomes more informed by better prices and and you ultimately have a world where when you reintroduce a more obvious opportunity cost to money, then, then you ultimately get a more stable economic system as a whole. 
Of course. Now I'm on your side, right? I'm I'm in the Austrian camp, but I can I can presume, I can imagine, or I've seen other people, let's say, on the Keynesian side, they might come back and say something like, Oh, well, how is it fair that you expect to just sit on your money and get a free return out of that? Isn't that you know, how how can you expect that? Well, I, I think one of the there there's a Keynesian trope, I would say, which is and maybe this is what or at least it's one thing that I talked about. And I think I think kind of it's, it speaks to the heart of your question, which is uh, that 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 if I have a currency that's appreciating, that people will never spend it, and that you know if there is a slowdown in economic activity or growth, don't we need that lever to be able to debase currency to be able to create the incentive for people to spend money? And I and I think that that is one of the most um, lazy uninformed, uneducated, breaking with the reality view of the world, um, that that it's just ridiculous. And the way that I describe it in the piece is, imagine that there were a world where there were only 21 million Bitcoin and there's 7 billion people and or 7 billion plus people. And those 7 billion plus people are all using Bitcoin and the function of money is coordinating economic activity and trade. All 7 billion people actually have to consume things every day. They need food, water, energy, healthcare, X, Y, Z, name whatever you want. Those people are all demanding things every day. They are going to be spending. So that's one idea, that, that, that you will have no problem with people spending a currency that has a fixed supply, even if it's appreciating. And it's this concept that Safe Dean talks about, uh, I think, in large part in the Bitcoin standard, but conversations that I've had with him elsewhere, which there's, there's this idea of time preference. And the idea of time preference is there's high time preference and low time preference. And high time preference, you're you're waiting the present over the future more so. And then if you have low time preference, you're you're waiting the future over the present. But in either of those scenarios, this, there's this recognition that everybody has positive time preference. Everybody on the margin is inclined to wait the present over the future because the future is uncertain and because our lives are finite. And, and that gets back to the same idea if you use the, the example or the, you know, the way that I visualize this for people who try to articulate it is if you had 21 million Bitcoin and yes, they're divisible to 100 million units, but you had 7 billion people, those 7 billion people have to consume things every single day to survive. Uh, and that's how you know that despite the fact that a, if a currency is appreciating or depreciating, people are going to spend it because money is only a utility for us in helping to more efficiently affect trade. Um, and so it, it's just ridiculous that that people would think that you know if a currency is appreciating um, that that people won't spend it. They will spend it every day, and they'll actually spend it more because it's it's doing a better job at getting them the things that they actually value in the real world. The other way I kind of counter that just for for the Keynesians or the modern monetary theorists out there is that Bitcoin has gone up fivefold in the past six seven months, and people are selling it every day. Uh, and then when Bitcoin just dropped 15% from 60,000 to roughly 50,000 or 12.5%, however, however much it is, that, that people are both selling that and buying that. that. That what's actually happening is that Bitcoin's becoming the most liquid good in the market and emergent consensus is occurring before our eyes that Bitcoin is being adopted as, as the, the monetary standard of value. Um, and so I think that um, we don't need an incentive to spend money. Um, the, the money is meant to be spent. It is the economic good that, that facilitates this exchange. And by definition, that means spending it. And, and for every exchange, someone is saving money and then somebody is 
foregoing that saving for present consumption. Um, and that happens naturally and actually happens more efficiently and with less distortion when the money and the underlying base of money is not being manipulated. Yeah, great explanation. So I think there's probably two key points that I would draw out of what you were saying. So firstly, I would say, I would summarize that really, it's the fallacy of composition. So what some Keynesians say is, oh, look, there's going to be this deflationary spiral if people aren't spending and all the businesses will go out of business and people will lose their jobs and that'll be terrible and we need to stimulate the economy. However, that's a fallacy of composition. People are, just because some businesses are going out, are going under and some people are losing their jobs doesn't mean all of them will. And so we can't just say that just because some businesses that exist today in the fiat high time preference world may not exist in the Bitcoin low time preference world, or kind of, I'm, I'm kind of loosely speaking there. Um, but it also means that people will repurpose those resources into other things. And that may mean that they re repurpose the production into things that are only going to come due or only going to be uh, fully produced in 10 or 20 years. I mean, talk about aged whiskey or whatever, or forests or cutting down the trees or whatever, they're going to reorient their production. And so there will be jobs in those other industries, right? And then the other point to which you were talking about was just about the way that, you know, it's, it's like, uh, sorry, the second point was around the money that you are, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm totally, I'm missing it there. What was the second point? So I, I was making, you know, uh, one point that the that money is a utility to, to exchange and that in, even in an appreciating world, people have present demands and, 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 pre, and, and positive time preference, even if they're low time preference. And then the second piece that, you know, kind of I, I just use the more empirical example that as Bitcoin increases in value, that they that people are spending it every day that they're that they're foregoing uh, that yes. and spending it and then I think one idea too that you're keying in on there which I think is the right one is and, and and I didn't mention this before but it's this idea that Bitcoin is just a neutral currency it, it doesn't it's not actually inherently deflationary and I think this is another thing that that many people miss um, and I think it's just a default position because they've been trained to to believe that inflation is necessary that they they just have never actually thought about what if there were a neutral currency that was neither increasing or decreasing, what it means for it to be quote deflationary. And, and really, what I think about that it is that in a world where you have a neutral currency that's neither increasing or decreasing, quote deflation is actually just an increase in purchasing power. And an increasing an increasing purchasing power means definitionally that the currency is doing its job of accumulating capital or helping society accumulate capital and making it essentially. Uh, making goods more abundant. And, and so what I mean by that is if you have a fixed amount of money and you're actually having more goods such that the purchasing power of the money is increasing and the prices are decreasing, you have a money that 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 only exists in that world that, that means that it's doing its job, that it's basically, it's more effectively communicating prices, communicating information through an economic system. And the output of that ultimately being the the greater productivity of those people that are functioning with that money. So it's like a, a deep a, a, a currency that is increasing in value and increasing in purchasing power means that it's doing its job and, and, and you wouldn't actually have an increase in purchasing power and people wouldn't be giving up their money for 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 essentially more and more goods if the the utility of those goods that they're getting 
isn't delivering value to them, but they're also doing it with the expectation that the economy is working so well and productivity is increasing that they're going to get money because they're delivering value to others. Um, and so that is, it is a core fallacy of Keynesian MMT monetarist theory, however you want to describe it. Um, I, I definitely think it, it's very shallow thought. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And as you were saying with the inflation aspect and the conversation around inflation versus deflation, sometimes it's people people operating on different definitions. So, so the classical definitions of inflation and, defla- and deflation are more about inflation means an increase in the supply of money and a deflation is a decrease in the supply of money. But then nowadays people conflate inflation with say CPI and then they're talking, it becomes more of a conversation around purchasing power. So I guess if we're going to be technical or the way I would explain it is Bitcoin currently is disinflationary. It is inflating at a you know, reducing rate until we obviously hit the 21 million. And today it's what, 18.7 million or something like that. Uh, but in terms of its purchasing power, it is deflationary. It is going up over time. And that is where the kind of conversation comes in around, I think it's that point around moneyness. And I think you make this point as well, which is that thinking about savings versus investment and basically people have in some sense turned the stock market stonks into a monetary instrument, haven't they? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of debate that happens about this, which is uh, kind of monies versus near monies. And there's this recognition that that money is never absolute. Um, that that I think that there is a, a good that emerges that is the most common f- use of uh, of the use of I guess of the term money. But that 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 if I'm thinking about Bitcoin or the dollar, or Bitcoin or gold. You're evaluating Bitcoin's monetary properties based on the relative strengths to other forms of, or other goods that could be used as money. But while that may be true, there's also a reality that people have started to use things that are not definitionally good forms of money as things that are near money or that or they argue that they're that they have moneyness. And, and and in those instances, like they'll say stocks are are you know have have some moneyness to them. Um, or real estate is is a store of value, and I think that that is really just a function of the bastardization of money. Um, that it, that it's more realistic that those things aren't money, or they don't have any moneyness. It's just people are being forced in those type of assets to offset the depreciation in money that is being engineered by central banks. Um, and so, and it's one of those. It's one of the ideas that I talk about in the piece that Bitcoin is the great definitionalization is that Bitcoin will help reverse course and it will help draw the distinction between investments and savings. And, and one, of the, one of the ideas that I talk about is there's this idea that most people have in their head that they must make their money grow. Um, and it's really that people have this idea to a large extent in their heads and it's been ingrained in it because they've also been trained to understand that their money loses its value. Um, and that there really is a very, very clear distinction or definition between saving and investment. Again, speaking to what I brought up before, saving is you've already taken risk and you've got money. Investment, you're putting that money back at risk. You're putting it in some endeavor, and the endeavor is to get more money, um, to, to have uh, you're taking risk and you're getting reward back. When those lines become blurred, to the point that they can't be deciphered where we even have this conversation of how, you know, how good of stores of value are stocks or real estate or is there moneyness in them or not? In my view, it is no, absolutely not. The problem is that the lines became blurred and Bitcoin is unblurring those lines. Um, and that as more people 
learn about Bitcoin and as knowledge distributes, people figure out that they don't actually need to make their money grow. They just need a better form of money, and that's what Bitcoin is, and that's what it represents. And that doesn't mean that there won't be investment. And, and that's another one of the, I'd say, Keynesian tropes, that it's, that on the one hand, it's that people won't spend in the consumption side, but it's also that that, that if you that this idea, oh no, if we, if we just have this better form of money, that people won't invest. And that's also just false, because while we all have present needs and we all need to consume things in, in, the, in the present, like food and water and energy and healthcare, we also all want to improve our lives. And we are all also rewarded for doing that. Um, and that is the function of trial and error and investment. And so it's, it's this fear that, that, that if you have a better form of money, that people won't do that. But it's actually the money that creates savers, that creates savings to then invest and consume. It, all that is happening is the economic incentives are being flipped from incredibly distortive or manipulative and ultimately counterproductive to one where there's a virtuous feedback loop. Yeah, I love that explanation there because uh, Bitcoin is unblurring that line because now that we have a real choice of money and a real way to actually save our value into the future, that is just uh, the step and that's going to be part of the change that we see over this, call it 10, 15 years, whatever it is, as the world Bitcoinizes, then people can really uh, get away from doing what they've had to do in the past. And I think it's funny because if we take you know what you're saying and we look at what people say in the, let's call it the traditional wealth management, personal finance, or even some of these uh, financial independence kind of communities, they'll be talking about, oh, hey, you've got to you've got to stack it away into your ETF. And that's how you save for the long term. Or everyone wants to become a property mogul. And they think this is the way that, you know, uh, you know, you go to the barbecues, or you go to the events, and everyone's talking about this apartments and houses that they bought and so on. And that's very much a phenomenon here in Australia. And I'm sure it's very much a phenomenon elsewhere around the world where everyone will go and chat about their investment and they're not having that clear delineation as you made it between savings versus investment because they've all been blurred. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the examples that that I'll use, you know, when I was just coming out of college or university and I was working at Deutsche Bank and most people that work a nine to five job or work for a Fortune 500 company will relate to this. You basically they make it very easy for you to take risk and essentially not save, but they bill it to you as savings. And you know, one example is you know, if you your 401k, you you click and you can max out your 401k and they make it super easy for you to do that. Well, what are they doing? They're making it very easy for you to continue to take risk perpetually, but they're they're doing it under the guise of risk taking. And what do they do? They give you 10 mutual funds and you have no idea what they actually hold. They say something like conservative investment grade bond index, uh, high yield bond index, high tech growth stocks, blue chip stocks. And you just choose a couple of those and you say 20% of this one and 30% of that one and maybe 10%. But you have no idea what risk you're actually taking. It's just Madison Avenue marketing. Um, But at the end of the day, you are taking risk and they're making it very easy. Uh, And you would then equate it with savings because you've been conditioned to do that. Um, and, and it becomes so second nature. And there's a very big difference between that. It's not just passive investing and active investing. I would say passive investing 100, 100% of the time is a terrible decision. It's you have to be intentional of the risk that you are taking. And if you're not, that is what I would call, um, the form of investment that is, uh, that is trying to replicate what 
just a better form of money should do for you on its own. And, and that there really is, I experience this, I think most Bitcoiners experience this, that there's something deeply cathartic about finally having a form of money that works in your favor rather than one that, that works against it. That is the opposite of that. Um, and that that uh, uh, Phil Geiger and I, we, we often joke about it here at the office that it doesn't, it shouldn't be intuitive to people that they have to work, you know, during the day and then ter- turn into a stock picker at night and become an expert. <laughs> that there's just not something that's normal about that, but it's been entirely normalized. And Bitcoin's fixing that. Yeah, that's excellent. And so taking that then to the traditional investment world and finance world, now we're getting into this position where there are large investment entities and these could be pension funds, they might be insurance companies, they are now in a position where they have to invest you know, some money or endowment funds as well and they have to invest some money on behalf of you know, their customers or their beneficiaries and so on. But now they're getting to a point where they actually can't make enough return that that them what compared to what they need to isn't that what you're saying as well yeah 100 percent um you know it's the pension funds um i'd say it, i mean it's not just that the that the pension funds have liabilities that they can't meet it's that the function of monetary debasement forces people into taking risk that they otherwise wouldn't take if not for the manipulation in the markets um, and that there's a really, really negative outcome that comes from that. And that what many of them are finding is that are doing the work is that the Bitcoin facilitates the function that they actually need better than any type of financial risk that they could take. It's almost um, it, it's the best of both worlds. I, I, I firmly believe that even though Bitcoin is, is volatile, it is the opposite of taking risk, of not taking risk. It's the definition of savings. It's just you're saving in a better form of money, and that a lot of the the forward, I'd say, maybe not even forward thinking institutions, but those that are able to work through the noise and understand Bitcoin for what it is, it's going to achieve their goal of achieving the returns because its purchasing power is going to increase. But it's also doing that while not taking risk. Um, and not taking, you know, in many cases, number of them will continue to take counterparty risk and use custodial solutions. Um, but but it's the best of both worlds. And, and if you can achieve your goal of store, storing value that you've already created in the world rather than taking risk, uh, increasing your purchasing power and eliminating a lot of the, um, I think, structural challenges that exist in financial assets, namely stocks and bonds, um, that, that you're going to work out better. Than, than anybody else that that is more resistant to that change. And if you had to compare, obviously, those of us in the orange-pilled world versus those in the more normie financial world, if you will, uh, and some of them, the way they are thinking about it, it might be more like, oh, see, I'm just going to take a little 1% position on Bitcoin. Uh, how are you seeing that shift in their thinking? Are they coming around to that or are they mostly in that kind of toe-dipping uh, level from your experience and your kind of uh, assessment of the industry? In my experience, I think we're seeing both, right? Um, and and I'll, I'll speak to some of things that I, I see privately, but then others that I that I see publicly just to articulate. It's that we see the mass mutuals of the world where they announced a $100 million position and that's four basis points, point. 0.04%. 
Then you see the Teslas of the world, you know, again, different types of institutions and they think differently and they're doing it for different reasons and they have different governance structures, but they moved a, a billion and a half in, and, and that's far more than four basis points. I'm not sure what, what percentage of the cash, but I believe it was around 10% or if it wasn't, it was high single digits or low double digits. Um, it was a more significant position. I think Michael Saylor really said it best. I think we've all been uh, walking around the space for a while, but he says things a lot of times that are better than we could ever say them. But but he said in one of the earliest interviews that he did that if you actually understand Bitcoin, there's no way that you only have 1% of your assets in it. Um, and, and I think that's really true. And I think it's, it's a part, it's natural to call it what you mean, education, knowledge distribution, but as your understanding of Bitcoin changes over time, and, and I think that Bitcoin's bigger than all of us, and we all each think about Bitcoin differently, and that's fine. But as one's um, ability to understand how and why Bitcoin has a credibly fixed supply, your willingness to store more value in the network necessarily increases. And that the way that I would probably describe it, or the way that I recommend to people is, that if you just knew that the idea behind Bitcoin is that there will only ever be 21 million, and if that statement were true, um, without any understanding beyond that, um, the minimum that you have to have is 1% because that thing is incredibly asymmetric. It represents the greatest asymmetry that exists in the world. But as you start to gain an appreciation for how or why that's possible, that something could be finitely scarce in the world and that thing might be digital and maybe it has to be digital to be finitely scarce, then you start to, to realize that, that that you can't just have 1% of your of your assets in that thing. And then as you start to develop conviction around it, not just an understanding of how it might be possible, but that it's probable, then you're probably looking at 5 to 10 to 20%. And then if you get to be the real you know, crazy people like ourselves, where it becomes increasingly inevitable. Um, and that, that while, while we believe it's inevitable, we're also, I'd say, probably the greatest skeptics where we try to, to undercut our own belief, you know, kind of understanding of the network that, that once it starts to become inevitable, that, that you start to look at it in a world where, um, the majority of your assets would be in Bitcoin and that it's not some, um, Hail Mary or, trying to get rich quick. It's that you've created value in the world and how are you going to best protect that? Uh, every every financial decision counts and, and Bitcoin is the best store of value because it is the best form of money that ever existed. So in the experience that I'm seeing, I'm seeing a range of institutions doing the, the toe, the dip the toe in the water versus the actual taking a material position. And, and I think that that's just a function of knowledge and it's natural. It's the same idea for individuals as it is for institution. And it's going to map to, and it will map to uh, an individual or an organization's understanding fundamentally of how and why Bitcoin has a, a 21 million fixed supply and what that represents. And also as the cycles take place, typically people learn. And so even for somebody, hypothetically, let's say somebody started with a 5% allocation into bitcoin then after another cycle they might be 20 30 percent into bitcoin and so just over time people end up being close to all in or very you know very high percentage allocations in bitcoin but i guess then the question is do you think some of these institutions will learn even faster than that that they would learn even without having gone through a full cycle or do you think that you know you kind of have to have been through a full bull and bear to really get to that point 
I'd probably say somewhere in between. Um, not not to not to be hedgy, but I think that certain people will because the access to information is only improving. That that really provides that that bread trail or kind of you know kind of where you know Michael Saylor's ability to go down the rabbit hole or Ross Stevens in 2020 or 2019 and even if those guys were paying attention to it before it just continues to get easier podcasts books blogs whatever it may be um, more and more information is there and it can it can accelerate the path um, there's also a reality that for the average person not necessarily of average intellect just the normal person bitcoin is difficult it is it is not intuitive and the questions about what what is and what isn't money and can bitcoin be it those are just hard questions regardless of someone's intellect um, and that that realistically there is a function of time seeing the network operate going down having the incentive to go deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole that that your confidence and your understanding and your 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 willingness to store more wealth in the network necessarily increases from point zero of the first time that you bought a Bitcoin to today or tomorrow or the next day or month from now or a year. Um, and so there will be people that, that fall down that path faster than others. But it's also part of the, probably the human condition of figuring out, you know, and becoming comfortable with the idea of Bitcoin as money, which which is something that's fairly foreign. Admittedly, I struggled with it for a long time. And, and practically speaking, if everyone admitted it, they, everyone probably does to, to different extents. Um, so people will people have the tools in front of them to to fall down the rabbit hole faster and harder than they've ever had before, and that will only accelerate. Uh, but but it also will remain hard for for people. Yeah, you know, and I'd say more, more people than less. Yeah, and I think while we can talk about it at a more intellectual level, there'll be some who just, you know, it's just a peer pressure, social thing, or it's an emotional thing. You know, they might be, so I guess at one level, they might just be looking at, oh, hey, what are my family and friends doing? And then the other aspect is maybe it's an emotional thing. Like I've felt I've felt enough pain. I feel the necessity that I need this thing. Uh, or it's a greed thing. Like I feel like, hey, the greed is going to motivate me to go and learn more about this thing as opposed to just kind of staying in the fiat world. Yeah, and I, I think there's two realities there, which is one, once you have some Bitcoin, you have a vested stake and you're you're more curious, you're paying attention more, you're, you're seeking information on the margin more than somebody else. So there's a benefit to just dipping the toe in and then and then go from there. Um, and then there's there's another reality that you know when when the price is going up and in in fear and speculation and hey my friends are getting rich and I don't want them to uh, without me that while that if they're just operating on that that's inherently irrational Bitcoin and its price going up is also a price signal. There's also information being communicated as part of that process. So even if you don't know why, if you're buying it because the price is going up, again, possibly irrationally, you're taking a very rational decision, whether you know it or not, that there's a signal being sent, which is the market is converging on Bitcoin as money, and that is causing its price to go up. Price is the output, monetary properties are the input, and the price going up fundamentally on the margin, not to say 100% of people that, that buy it do it, but the reason why it goes up consistently over time and why it always finds a higher base is because people are evaluating the credibility of its monetary properties. And then the people that are being dragged in by FOMO or some other speculation and aren't doing the fundamental work, they're following that price signal. And, and what oftentimes happens is they get dragged in via FOMO, and then a certain percentage of those people naturally seek out information and understand the right reason, the fundamental reason, the 21 million, how it works, why it works, um, how transformative 
that technical innovation is and what it means. Um, and that converts long-term holders and people that then become, you know, from a dip the toe in the water uh, and a, you know, somebody that's just there for the for the easy money that, that falls down the rabbit hole and understands the real reason why they should be there. And, and they, they, they turn into storing more of the wealth in the network to deciding that they want to convert their goods and services to Bitcoin like a Tesla. So uh, I just think about it as it's, a, it's an evolutionary process and people will be at different ends of the spectrum and, and get there for 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 different reasons, but they'll end up in the same place inevitably for the right reasons. Yeah, and it's an interesting example there with Tesla because they are now accepting Bitcoin for their cars, and you can actually you know pay with Bitcoin. And the important po- point as well is that they are using open source software. They're accepting Bitcoin, and they're planning to hold the Bitcoin, which is very much more advanced than the typical 2013, 2014 merchant adoption. But really, they are just insta dumping it for fiat, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I found that announcement to be. Um, I mean, it, it's important for a number of reasons. You know, there's there's the reality that you know they they announced when they announced that they bought a billion and a half of Bitcoin a couple of months ago that they would. I don't know what the language was in the SEC filing, but it was along the lines of we plan to uh, accept Bitcoin for you know the people who have the opportunity to buy cars for Bitcoin. So it was already messaged that they'd be doing this, but they announced that they did it and that it, that, it, that it's live and that um, they're using internal and open source tools, only internal open source tools, which means that they're somehow in, you know, not somehow, but practically speaking, they're investing resources within Tesla to to understand the, the technical applications of Bitcoin, which is really important. Um, they also said that they're going to, anything that's paid in Bitcoin, they're going to retain in Bitcoin. It's part of how they're managing treasury. Um, and that they're storing their wealth. They're, they're, they're putting their balance sheet in Bitcoin to protect the future of the company for their employees, for their investors, for their customers. Um, and that there is so there are so many people that look at it and say Bitcoin's too volatile. It, it, it's not used as a day to day currency. And the reality is that that's an that's an evolutionary path. That as people decide that they're going to store wealth in Bitcoin, that is the necessary precursor to I'm going to directly transfer my goods and services for it. And you've already grappled with that question of volatility. And, and you've, you've come to understand that volatile things are not necessarily risky and uh, the, the, the reverse or the opposite is also true. And this is a demonstration which we can make the fundamental argument. You and I, we can go out there to the world and we can intellectually say, no, but you see, it's it's not too volatile, and people will actually sell their goods and services for it. But then, when you have the cover to say, "Hey, and oh, by the way, Tesla's actually doing it right now," um, and you, the onus is really on you to understand why, because they're doing it; it's real. And once they do it, somebody else is going to do it. And practically speaking, somebody else already are is doing it. Coinkite, you know, any number of people. They just you know aren't nearly as flashy, but the headlines they they anchor people. And they, they turn what is an intellectual conversation into a real world marketplace. And when others see it happening, they, they may not know why, but they can no longer deny that it's happening. And there's just a reality that, it, you know, whether it's an appeal to authority, what may have you, you know, in my book, Tesla has you know, no more authority than the coin kites, coin kites of the world or the unchained capitals of the world, uh, but others think differently. And it helps set an example, and others are contemporaries of of different types of people. Um, and and having those contemporaries do things um, cause change to happen. So um, it really does have an impact, and it, and it demonstrates a leadership perspective or position for for a number of uh, ways and and for for different reasons. 
Back to the show in a moment. Lend at HODL HODL is a non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow globally and anonymously. So if you've got stable coins, you can lend them and earn returns. HODL HODL's lending allows you to earn 25% APR on average, one of the highest returns on the market. Also, if you have Bitcoins and you need liquidity, you can put them up as collateral and get some fiat stablecoin liquidity without trusting your money to any single party. With Lend at HODL HODL, your Bitcoin collateral is locked in a two of three escrow. So this allows peer-to-peer lending and borrowing directly between users. With this platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and what interest you're looking to earn. Go check it out, lend.hodlhodl.com. Cyphersafe.io If you are dealing with Bitcoin, you've also got to think about recovery and backing up your coins. CypherSafe produce metal backup seed products like the Cypher Wheel, and they've also got a Bitcoin recovery tag, specifically helping with recovery. This is an extra stainless steel tag with additional information like the original wallet, gap limit, derivation types, scripts used, and all of the major hardware wallets have their own type of recovery tag specifying for that specific type. You attach this to your seed word backup with a stainless steel cable included and there's also a website link for recovery so you or your heirs can get guidance in recovering those coins on electrum so it actually adds that value of helping you recover in practice so go and buy yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code lavera for discount coinkite.com the creators of the cold card one of the most recommended hardware wallets by bitcoiners it has a range of awesome features like the ability to use it completely air gapped this is a device that's designed to do only bitcoin and it has been securely locked down and the level of security that you're getting for this relatively low price is really incredible it offers PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions, and it works great as part of a single signature setup, or when you're ready to upgrade to multi-sig, you can use it for that also. So go and check them out. They've got all sorts of features. They've recently included some new firmware version 4 with Libsec P256K1. They've got deterministic builds, the ability to calculate the checksum, and lots of other features. Go and buy one at coinkite.com and use the code Lavera for a discount there. Back to the show. Yeah, and now we have this increasing ability to access Bitcoin because now we've got a lot more of a conversation around new Bitcoin funds coming into play. We've got a lot more conversation around ETFs, and it's going to be a matter of time until a US Bitcoin ETF is fully formally approved. We've got, I think it's Fidelity, Skybridge, VanEck, Bitwise. Uh, I know Nidig also are looking at getting into that game. So, And we've got large banks and custodians getting into the game. Uh, how are you uh, looking and thinking about about uh, that um, accessibility question. Yeah, look, I think that, you know, just as Tesla is buying Bitcoin and then GM and Ford and every other Fortune 500 co- company is inevitably, maybe not everyone, but but practically speaking, many of them are questioning both their approach to, to Treasury that, that Michael Saylor really has helped, you know, lead the charge on, that that's happening in one corner of the world. And as that's happening, it also impacts other people that are investors in companies like Tesla or MicroStrategy. And those type of people that may be traditionally more financial investors, they are people that invest in ETFs. And you and I, we believe that people should hold their own keys to their Bitcoin. And I think that over time, the longer that somebody holds Bitcoin, the more likely they are to understand why they should do that and why it delivers greater security. But what ultimately is beautiful about Bitcoin is that 
that it is a it is the most free market in the world. It oftentimes gets ragged on for being manipulated by X, Y, Z. But practically speaking, it is the most free and unmanipulated market in the world. And it is attracting all sorts of mindshare. And so when I see the Fidelities of the world, the Skybridge of the world, the Van X, the Bitwise, the Valkyries, the Nidigs working on ETFs, I think they're increasing competition. They're delivering products to the market that wouldn't be being delivered if people didn't demand it. And that that is, um, and that, that, that competition is good. And that they're likely speaking won't be, you know, a thousand different ETFs, but there's going to be an ETF and it's going to solve a need for people. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the needs it's going to solve is that there's a product in the market called GBTC and it's a terrible product, but people demand it in a big way because certain people are not at the point where they want to take on that risk or not. That's a bad way to say it. Take on the responsibility because I don't think it's a risk. It's only a risk if you spend the time uh, to, to understand and to take it seriously. But there are people in the world that are at that stage of their Bitcoin life cycle. And you can either have a, a a product like GBTC that has four layers of counterparty risk and two percent fees, and it can't it's not managed to nav. Uh, and and look, GBTC will likely be converted. But but the point is that as more competition exists in the space of institutional money management, having access to Bitcoin, that's a good thing because it will ultimately result in better products with lower fees. Um, Nidig just announced yesterday, I believe it's not even their ETF, but they have a, a fund that gives access to to institutional money managers, and they reduced the the um, the operational fees or the the management fees on that down to thirty basis point point three percent. So that's ultimately good. Bitcoin is going to flow to those vehicles again over the long term. I believe more Bitcoin will. Far more Bitcoin will live outside of it than in it. But like in this current iteration of Bitcoin, it's a positive thing. And, and it may be the most positive because it's helping to mainstream Bitcoin. And it's and it's a it's a function of Bitcoin stealing mindshare as Bitcoin steals mindshare, the monetary network advances. Um and I and I and I'm excited for it. Again, I'm gonna go out and 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 you know push, you know, hold hold your own keys till till the uh, you know cows come home. But um, but but I also support um, different types of custody and different products, and and ultimately the competition is good for Bitcoin. Of course, yeah, and I think you make a really good point about how it's a stepping stone for many people. That it's not the final step that they just buy this thing and leave it in there. And obviously, I think both you and I would encourage people to not just kind of buy it and leave it on a brokerage or some kind of exchange and just trust them. You want to actually take a more active step here and take responsibility for yourself and for those keys um there is and it also does kind of bring up that conversation about how um people look at you know the glass node statistics and say oh look the coins on the exchanges are going down but i wonder whether that is just kind of keeping more coins are going to the big custodians right the call it whatever coinbase custody and um you know anchorage and bitgo and those players um and i wonder then is that a you know is there an opportunity here to get more people into a multi-sig self-custodial scenario here? I, well, look, I, I think that there certainly is. And there, uh, I ultimately think that, that that will be the clear standard. And companies like Unchained Capital and companies like Casa, we are in the process of establishing that as a standard. And so while it's, it's not 100% clear how much of the Bitcoin that's leaving the exchanges is going to uh, more primary custodians versus non-custodial. But I can tell you that a lot of assets are coming onto platforms like Unchained Capital and Casa, and that is a good. Um, I also believe 
that competition between Coinbase and custodians like Fidelity and Nidig and Gemini are good, right? Like decentralized, Bitcoin decentralizes fundamentally. The longer that Bitcoin continues to work, the more people that get drawn into it, the more decentralized Bitcoin becomes. And that is inevitably a good thing. So rather than there be one Coinbase, it's a good thing that Fidelity exists and Bitco exists and Nidig exists. Um, and Gemini exists and others will, that those people be in competition because they're offering custodial solutions for a certain target market and they have to compete with each other and that forces each of them to be better and their products to be better. That being said, there's also a reason why NYDIG invested in Unchained. Um, and I think that there's a reality that you know when we estimate it, that the non-custodial market or the market that we estimate to be not on exchange or not on a custodian is larger than those that do. Um, and I think that there's a fundamental reason why that is. But you have somebody like Nidig that when I think about them and and you know we've established a relationship, they took a minority stake in Unchained Capital, but it was really precipitated by a relationship that we developed personally with their management team. Um, and and they wouldn't have invested in Unchained if they didn't see the value. And they they've directly communicated that that they see value and they understand why people want to hold their own keys, should they hold their own keys, and, and why that is, a, that, that is viable. And that they're interested you know, individually as NYDIG, but I presume each one of these custodians is going to come to, to the same conclusion, that that market is big. It's likely bigger than their own market over time. Again, they might not you know, believe that as much as I believe that. Um, but in that world, you have this custodial architecture and this non-custodial architecture. Those two things complement each other at the end of the day. Both of them are large. Both of them are going to be viable. What binds us all is a belief in Bitcoin, um, and that I do think part of the part of the recognition on their side of of why people hold their own keys, why that's important for individuals to have that capability, but also why it's important for Bitcoin. That that Nidig's involvement with Unchained and their investment Unchained in Unchained will help institutionalize the non custodial business. It will help bring not just the capital that we need to build the platform, um, but then similarly, um, Fidelity through their venture arm invested in Casa. And that's good. That's great, right? And as we get more capital to invest in these solutions, we will make it easier. Um, we will make it more secure for our clients, but then more holistically as we invest in, in open source applications like Caravan or as open source applications like Spectre get built. Um, and all of that is a function of there is an incredibly valuable asset, which is Bitcoin. It has a finitely scarce supply. And we're in the process collectively, well, whether it's the Fidelis of the world, the NIDIGs, the custodials, the non-custodials, that we're figuring out the ways that people can most securely secure that and, and the best are going to win. Um, and in NIDIG's case, they're helping us actually advance um, the non-custodial architecture and, and have the resources to be able to to realize the vision that we have. And as we do that, um, the whole ecosystem will get better, not not singularly because of NIDIG and Unchained, but because of the competition that's happening to deliver the most value to Bitcoiners. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it because you could see it, uh, depending on how you think about it, you might think, oh, see, all these people are just going to the custodial things and that's not true Bitcoin and that's not going to help overall. But on the flip side, that money coming in does drive interest and it drives attention, it drives mindshare. And then the investments made by some of these companies, for example, like NYDIG investing into Unchained, 
it helps the overall ecosystem because now if you want to have self-custody multi-sig, you can achieve that. And that's some of the tools that Unchained are providing uh, and the ecosystem and the competition out there. It, you know, we could almost think of it like it, it doesn't matter that much, you know, d- the t- dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog. Well, ultimately, Bitcoin is becoming more valuable. And the view that, let's say, you and I have is that when you use non-custodial Bitcoin, it's so much more powerful. And so other people will see that benefit too. Yeah, and I think that... One of the things that, uh, you know, especially people that that have a fundamentally um, sound understanding of Bitcoin, like Robbie and Ross and the team at NYDIG have, and and I've seen it from others um, at at other institutions, that they recognize that there are both worlds and they are both important and that there oftentimes are and will continue to be contexts where they might have investors that, that need a qualified custodian like NYDIG, but then they as individuals might need a non-custodial solution like collaborative custody at Unchained, that both those things are true at the same time. And that I think for stewards of capital um, and certainly executives like Ross Stevens and Robbie Gutman, um, that that in their own interests, if they have Bitcoin and they are they are interested in preserving value and creating value, that they want to help build the banks that they need. Right. And they see value in both and they're helping to fund both. Um, and they're also helping to fund other parts of the ecosystem. I think there's a reality that, and this is something that I said when we announced the, the deal, that it takes Bitcoin-minded entrepreneurs to create value for Bitcoin. And that's what the team at NYDIG is, and that's what they saw on Unchained, and that's why they're helping to, to fund our business and ultimately to help fund the development of both open source and non-custodial applications that we offer here uh, because they're important. Somebody that doesn't understand Bitcoin, that that is looking at it more from a silicon a traditional silicon valley vc of the world that this is about blockchain and a thousand different cryptocurrencies they're not going to look at a company like unchain and understand why it is that we're building the things that we are it takes a bitcoiner um and and ultimately the the i what from what i've seen in the space that that bitcoiners understand bitcoin and they're more open to competition and they're open to 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 wanting to further the development of Bitcoin while also being just straight up capitalists and wanting to create value for themselves. And the way that they do that, the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is they can do it both at the same time. Yeah, that's awesome. And so for listeners out there, because I think many of them might be sitting on, say, a single signature wallet, or maybe they've left their coins on the exchange, or maybe they've just got a small amount on a phone wallet, and maybe they've got a little bit of what's the word, hesitation around going to something like an unchained multi-sig setup. So can you just tell, tell us what does it take to get an unchained multi-sig setup? What does that process look like? Yeah, so I like to think about it as we we have a range of clients that we work with that most, even, even the most sophisticated Bitcoiners have questions about multi-sig and that realistically speaking, people do not change how it is they're securing their Bitcoin for a marginal improvement in security. That people only change how it is they're securing their Bitcoin if the increase in security and the sleep at night benefit is material. And and that's what we're seeing with platforms like Unchained Capital and Casa, that these, these applications were released kind of over 2018, 2019, and it required time for, for early adopters to come in and for the platforms to develop and for the security to improve and for early standards to start to emerge, which we, we still think that we're early at. And there's a lot of ways that we can continue to, to improve the security. 
but that recognizing that it's not just about the fact that that people that are new to Bitcoin or that might be working with a single key and they're non-technical. It's just that there's a reality that anytime you're asking people to change how it is they're securing their Bitcoin, that people do not take that decision lightly, nor should they. And um, one of the ways that I would describe it is the bar that we set for ourselves as a company, uh, as well as in general, people that hold Bitcoin, it's not like if Twitter goes down for five minutes. Because if Twitter goes down for five minutes, you show back up five minutes later and you start tweeting again or reading your tweets. Whenever you're dealing with Bitcoin, every every single instance matters. It can't fail once. Um, and you have to be damn sure that 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 you do, do not screw up. And, and one of the benefits about Bitcoin is it drives ultimate accountability. There is no moral hazard. There are no bailouts. All Bitcoin transactions are final. If you screw something up, it's on you. And the ultimate benefit to the network is massive because it aligns all incentives. But when we're talking about the development of multi-sig and the application of multi-sig and collaborative custody and the application of multi-sig and collaborative custody with a new partner like Unchain, which you know we've been in the market since 2019, but when we were establishing it as a standard or on that path, uh, it required a lot of diligence on behalf of a lot of forward-thinking Bitcoiners. But we're at the point now where we have a concierge program, and that program is designed to take people who are both the most sophisticated Bitcoiners but haven't used multisig and help them understand the important aspects of multisig that they need to know to, in order to use multisig safely and securely. Um, but also put those people who've never had Bitcoin um, or are somewhere in between to help them go from zero to holding their own keys and holding their own keys in multi-sig. And one of the ways that, that I really think about it is through multi-sig and particularly the application of collaborative custody, we're taking a lot of people that would otherwise not feel secure in holding their own keys and putting them in a position and empowering them to accelerate their process to doing just that to having absolute control of their wealth in the form of Bitcoin and in the form of holding Bitcoin with keys and that they ultimately have unilateral control over. So when people come to Unchain, even if they don't, you know, they could be the most sophisticated, they could be starting at zero. We have a concierge onboarding process where clients sign up for it. We ship them keys directly from the manufacturer or they can bring their own keys. Um, we help them set those keys up. We, we talk to them. We help them explain how keys work, how to back up keys, why we approach custody the way that we do. We then move over to their Unchained Capital account. We help them use those keys to build a, a multi-sig wallet with Unchained. We demonstrate for them how they can use our open source application caravan should anything happen to Unchained. The whole core of our idea is a, fault, a highly fault-tolerant form of custody. Um, and then we also provide them with oper operational security guides. Um, it is the best money that, that people can spend. Um, and the service is basically a crash course in how Bitcoin actually works. And when I talk to a lot of people that are coming into to Bitcoin for the first time, and we're starting to, to you know, reach people that you know, are in their 50s and 60s, run businesses, uh, aren't super technical, we're finding that they're able to easily get up that curve because 
not just that it's multi-sig, not just because it's collaborative custody, but because we have this concierge process and we can we can help educate them. And and it's really that even for somebody, and I and I, I believe this, you know, from a number of the VCs that I've spoken with, a lot of VCs have never touched a Bitcoin private key. And there's a reality that you cannot understand Bitcoin in the way that you would if you've actually touched a private key, set up a key, used a backup, understood how an, a Bitcoin address works and sent money to and from uh, a non-custodial solution where you're actually creating uh, cryptographic signatures with your own private keys. And so I, I tell people that when you go through that process, there's nothing that says that you actually have to use it, but the education alone allows you to understand things about Bitcoin that you couldn't otherwise understand. And once you do understand those things, you are going to be more confident in storing more wealth in Bitcoin and in the Bitcoin network. It is a natural precursor to getting Bitcoin is interacting with keys. If you haven't done that, you don't stand a chance. Um, and so I, I recommend people go through that process because if you if you set up keys, you build a vault, you, you, you do test transactions, there's nothing that says you have to, to move the, the majority of your wealth over to that. However, it is so easy and it is digestible and we are there as a partner that we do and we are every day expanding the universe of people that are going to naturally be capable of holding their own keys and accelerating them down that path. So you come in, you sign up for concierge, we send you keys, we help you set up those keys, we help you build a multi-sig vault. Um, you know, in certain cases, we've we've done it in a 24-hour period for clients that are purchasing large amounts to our OTC desk. But in general, people should expect a, a one-week to two-week process, and and they can go from zero to multi-sig and holding their own keys, and it's a it's a really valuable service. Yeah, of course. And so this is also available not just for individuals, but you offer this on a business level as well with the business concierge service. So what's uh, what's the difference there on the business side? Yeah, and I think you know one thing that's important to know about our platform at, at Unchained Capital is that really what defines it is our approach to custody, collaborative custody, and then how we integrate financial services. When people come to appreciate the nature and our approach to security and custody of Bitcoin, for those people that demand private key ownership and value our approach and value us as a partner, we want to serve those people in both their personal capacity, their retirement capacity, and their business capacity, that there are synergies between being that one-stop shop. But we also recognize as a company, as individuals, because we work across different contexts, that there are different challenges and problems to be solved when you're dealing with a, a business that's securing Bitcoin versus an individual. When you're in the individual context, it's your Bitcoin, it's yours alone. You can secure the keys. You might share one of the keys with a loved one, a, a spouse, a partner, uh, maybe a child or maybe a sibling, but it's your Bitcoin and you're in control. When you start to bring in multiple people and an organization of people, definitionally, the complexity of how you store that Bitcoin, particularly if you're doing it in a non-custodial arrangement like collaborative custody with Unchain, it's a different challenge. It's not It's not only different from um, affecting financial controls, but it's also different in terms of how the keys are held, what, what controls need to exist on the physical side in terms of segregating keys across individuals, what type of redundancy you need for each of those keys, whether or not you should have multiple individuals that have access to the same key or how you should think about redundancy within your organization. Um, and so there's more people involved. Um, there's, there's different considerations to be had. 
And so the difference, the key distinctions between the um, the individual concierge and the business concierge is business is tailored to the needs of, of an organization that has multiple people. Now, if you have a, a if you have a small business and you're the only one that uh, that is going to be touching keys, you can just sign up for individual because your individual um, context is going to map very similarly to your business context. But as soon as you start to introduce multiple people in an organization of people, there's you have to educate more people on on private key ownership. So it requires more meetings with more people. Um, you're going to have um, different considerations as it relates to operational security. You're going to, to your, the nature of your secure locations of where you store those keys and backups is going to change. And uh, you're also going to need consulting as it relates to to that process of, of the nature of, it's not just where keys are stored, but it's also, well, you know, you might have four people that need access to keys. And if we're working at two or three with, with backups and recovery seeds, which is how our application works, clients have two keys, we have one, but then our clients will have backups that you might want to have two people that have access to the same key. And you might want to make a copy of that key. And you want, might want to have two other people that have access to the other key to make sure that you always have redundancy, that if someone's out of the loop or they've gotten sick or they got hit by a bot, that, that you're there and secure. So there's a, there's a lot more time that is spent on our side. There's more considerations. There's different considerations. And it really just maps to and, and, and requires a different process. But with both pieces of that, we want to create an easy path for people to go from zero to multi-sig. And that's the whole point. And we try to accomplish that through concierge. Of course, yeah. And that's great. And I'd, I'd highly encourage listeners out there to consider Unchained. They're a really top-notch team. I'm a big fan of their work. Uh, and so whether you're an individual or you're looking for retirement or you're a business person, I think they're a great place to look. And uh, also, I wanted to chat a little bit as this has become a topic that people are talking about now. It's this idea of living on your Bitcoin. So I guess high level, there's a few ways people can go about this, right? So people might be thinking, okay, Number one is just spend some Bitcoin, right? Now, obviously, depending on which country you're in, you'll be paying capital gains tax and that's a capital gains event, etc. Uh, another option, and you know, I'm not necessarily recommending this, but some people might look at some of the interest account sort of things that are available in the space. But then thirdly, there's this collateralized loan idea. And so it's this idea that you can collateralize some Bitcoin and get back some fiat. And now, yes, you're paying interest, but that's a potential option in terms of, um, you know, being able to unlock some of that value. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that loan um, would work and, you know, how, how that would work if, let's say, somebody wants to, um, you know, go through that process and then maybe they're rolling over that loan? Yeah, sure. So kind of a couple key considerations up front. One, when you're taking a loan, the most important thing is the security of your Bitcoin. And I think that the most important education that people need to go through is understanding what is happening to the Bitcoin when you are taking out a loan and that Bitcoin is serving as collateral. Um, you need to understand that from principally two sides. First, how is the Bitcoin actually being secured from a custody perspective? And then two, what is the nature of the legal agreement with the person that's providing the loan? Uh, and a couple of things that I would mention there for people. On the legal side, in the case of Unchain, the Bitcoin remains in the title of our clients, which is a really important legal distinction. It is not a liability of Unchain. It's not a liability in an asset, um, which, which means that if anything ever happens to Unchain from a legal perspective, it's not a it's not a liability of our estate um, that you wouldn't have to uh, 
you know, submit a claim in an unchained bankruptcy, should that ever happen, which we never expect it to. But if it did, it's your asset. It's It remains in your title throughout the, the, the entirety of the loan, which is something that most people don't have an appreciation for. But myself, having worked previously in the bankruptcy world, um, understand and appreciate very well. Second thing is how the Bitcoin is custodied. Um, in our world, we don't rehypothecate collateral. Bitcoin sits in a multi-sig address. We allow our clients to have one key. In that instance, our clients have one key. We have one key. And our uh, third-party partner of our Citadel SPV holds the third key. Um, that is really important. People might look at it and say, well, I'm not in control. And how do I know that Unchain and Citadel SPV can't collude? Point is that no single party has unilateral access. It's in cold storage, private keys distributed across three parties, and borrowers can verify 100% of the time that the Bitcoin hasn't moved. Because if every one of Unchained's loans exists that same way, then if it ever happened, it wasn't the case for one borrower, all borrowers would know about it. So um, it's an important part where we think about minimizing trust that's required and unchained to ultimately increase security of our borrowers. So those, that becomes the first part. You have to evaluate if the whole purpose of you taking out your loan is to preserve your Bitcoin, then in your evaluation of, of a lender or whether or not you should take that, that is the first and most important thing you should evaluate. If you, if you, if you are uncomfortable there where it's either becoming a liability of your lender, um, a, a, a company called Cred was a lender and they recently filed for bankruptcy. Um, and, and a lot of their borrowers that have posted collateral are going to be out all their Bitcoin. Um, if your lender is rehypothecating collateral, again, it's up to you to evaluate whether or not you should do that, but you need to understand what the risks that present. And then that will cause you to evaluate whether or not you're comfortable in that arrangement, but know the risk that you're taking when that happens. Um, then when you get from there, it's an evaluation of, okay, well, what, what are the other, what are the other potential risks? Well, you know, going in what the interest rate that you would pay is. Um, and it's very clear in our case that our, our loans have fixed interest rates. They vary based on the, the duration between three months and three years. Um, and there are no pre-penalty payments. Um, so if you take out a loan, you do pay an origination fee, but then if you repay it early, um, you don't, you don't pay a penalty. Um, and, and I'd say most loans in the space that, that work that way. Um, but then there's also this, this consideration of there are risks. And that's why um, we, we want everyone to be educated on those risks that we effectively, um, we, we manage our loans essentially as margin facilities. So um, it's a, we don't rebalance every night, but we rebalance on thresholds. And that is one of the risks where, um, you know, if, if the price of Bitcoin falls precipitously, uh, there's a risk that, that that if Bitcoin get to a certain threshold and you haven't posted additional collateral or repaid a portion of the loan, that your Bitcoin could be liquidated. And we want everyone to to understand those risks. One of the things that we've done recently to to help avoid them is that we've lowered both the loan to value that we issue loans at. So we're actually requiring more collateral. We're not doing it for some financial engineering or rehypothecation perspective where we can lend out more collateral on the back end. It's principally to ensure that clients don't have a combination of margin calls or get liquidated. We're basically helping our clients be more conservative in terms of how they borrow. But it but it still remains a risk and it needs to be a risk. People need to understand how the margin requirement works and how it must be maintained and 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 that they're in a position. We always tell people don't borrow against all your Bitcoin. I wouldn't recommend borrowing against more than 25% of your Bitcoin. But one of the ways that we help people manage that is by actively um, reducing the the the, the loan to value ratio. So today we lend at 40% loan to value. So if somebody wanted a, um, 
a $100,000 loan, we'd require $250,000 worth of collateral um, to give a sense using, using an example. Uh, but then once a loan is, once a loan comes to maturity, like you asked about, um, then uh, borrowers can either repay the loan or, uh, or they can um, request to, to renew the loan and take out a new loan. Um, and, and, and the vast majority of all of our borrowers, when a loan comes to term, they, they do take a, a new loan out and just roll it, uh, essentially refinance the old loan and have a new loan with a, with a new term. Um, so there's a lot of, there, there, there are risks involved, but for a lot of our clients, it adds a lot of value for those that use it conservatively, don't get ahead of their skis, um, borrow, borrow conservatively and, and are able to um, manage and, and consume in the present to a certain extent while not having to forego the, the future option, optionality of their Bitcoin and the future upside. Yeah. So I guess to summarize that then, obviously, as you mentioned, there are some risks. You have to consider that. And obviously, Unchained are doing everything they can to minimize the risk as well by giving the client the possibility to hold one of three keys and know that it's not being rehypothecated. Um, and as you mentioned, the risk around liquidation. So I guess that one just means basically you need to be you you know you want to be prudent and you want to over collateralize the amount and i mean you could theoretically like if the requirement is 250% of the amount you're loaning you could like the client could potentially put in even more if they wanted to right and just borrow less on it and then that way they're even more safe and i guess the other part is to make sure that they're not um putting up a big percentage of their stack into the loan that they're doing a small portion um of their stack onto the platform um and then in doing that they are I guess, minimizing that risk. And let's say, hypothetically, the Bitcoin price were to drop quite a lot, they could then potentially put in some more Bitcoin to avoid being liquidated. Yeah, and, and that, that, that's a good point because one bar, people can and do put way more than 250% to avoid just that, to say, I'm I, under no circumstance am I going to be subject to a drawdown in the price that could result in liquidation. Now, at forty percent loan to value for for a, a full liquidation, it require a, a six, you know, approximately a fifty five to sixty percent drop in the price, um, which is significant. And uh, but for that reason, and and to give you a sense, right now our borrowers and one of the things that prompted the change, many of our borrowers just re- remaining in over collateralized position as the price of Bitcoin goes up. Which is one of the unique features about our loans is that as the price of Bitcoin goes up, we do um, we do allow for people to to take collateral back up to a certain extent. And we also increase that threshold also to, to not to prevent from people from taking their collateral back, but just to ensure that their loans stay in a conservative position. So before we used to issue loans at a 50% loan to value, we, we reduced that, which essentially requires more collateral to 50%. But then rather than when, when Bitcoin got to 250%, so say they, they, they took out a $100,000 loan and, and before they would have had to post $200,000 worth of collateral, if the price went up such that it was two hundred fifty thousand, we'd allow for collateral to be returned. Now we require it to be three hundred percent, three hundred thousand before we reduce collateral, and we only reduce down to two hundred fifty percent rather than two hundred percent. But to give people a sense too, right now on average, our clients have four hundred percent collateral to principal ratio, or at a, you know below a twenty five percent loan to value, because they're choosing to be conservative, which we certainly encourage, and they can do that not worried about their collateral because. It's all segregated. It's in dedicated multi-sig addresses where clients want to. They have one key. We have one key and an independent third party does. So in their view, in many of our clients' cases, it's I'm doing this to ensure against having to, to actively manage margin um, and, and I'm comfortable that the Bitcoin isn't at risk. It's not moving. I can see I can validate on chain. I can validate, you know, I could put a watch only 
wallet with my own node if I want to. Um, and, and I'm, I'm comfortable that my Bitcoin is there. So I'm, I'm actually, um, feeling more secure because I know how it's custodied, um, and having it be in an, in an over collateralized position more than, than is required. Yeah. And in terms of the interest rates, then is that possible to also be, uh, I guess, capitalized into the loan or is it more just like people could borrow, they could just borrow the amount additional if they like, let's say they had a lot of Bitcoin, but they didn't have a lot of income. They wanted to do that kind of collateralized loan. Is that also a possibility? Is that something people do as well? Yeah, true. Right now, we we do not offer that as an option. Certain certain people, we basically, they're, they're interest only loans. They, they're required to pay um, fiat interest, dollar interest. Um, and, but, but certain borrowers do take out more and then use the dollars to, to fund the interest. Um, so, so they do do that. We just don't allow them to, to immediately take collateral and convert that into, um, into interest. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, just in terms of, I guess, rolling over the loans, I guess the choice there is, uh, also around if they wanted to, let's say do the full three-year loan, then the interest rate for that is around 14%. Whereas if they're doing the shorter term, they are doing it at a lower interest rate. I think that's uh, anywhere between sort of 10, 10, 11%-ish. Yeah, it's between, in, in a, in a, on an APR basis, it's between 11 and 14%. Um, I would say we have the, we generally have the highest rates in the market and we're proud of that. Um, and it's because we don't take additional risk with your Bitcoin. If people want to know the true cost to borrow against their Bitcoin, it's the rate that we have. Um, if you're if you're getting a lower rate, it's likely because the security isn't as high or additional risks are being taken. Um, and, and, you know, I often tell people that, um, there's a reality that our loans and interest rates effectively act as, as almost like a forward interest rate of the currency, um, with some discount being put in for the over collateralized nature that, uh, that, that when people ask me about why the interest rates are so high, I, I turn around and I ask them what interest rate would they lend to somebody else to allow them to hold Bitcoin rather than themselves, um, because that's effectively what we're enabling via our loans. So the the, the interest rates aren't low, but the, the thing that characterizes our borrowers are, are really a combination of three or four things that they've held Bitcoin for a long time. So they have a very low tax basis such that if they were to sell any Bitcoin to fund a purchase, it would result in a, in a high cap gains tax. Uh, second thing is that because they've held Bitcoin for a long time, their Bitcoin represents a disproportionately high share of their net worth. Um, and then the third thing is they've managed to hold the Bitcoin to the point that it does represent both a high disproportionate share of their net worth, as well as having a low tax basis means that they really believe in Bitcoin and they want to preserve that future optionality. Um, and so when they think about that world, if again, I'm, I'm never somebody that predicts prices, but I do think the Bitcoin adoption is going to go up on 100x, um, that they would rather pay between um, 11 to 14% than, than forego that upside optionality. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And so the way they might be thinking about it is if they want to invest in something, or maybe it's even a business project that they want to invest in, they realize that by using this kind of loan for them, it foregoes the capital gains tax. And it like, essentially, it means they have to forego less sats, uh, net net, um, so long as you know, they've managed their risk appropriately, and it all plays out, then essentially, they end up foregoing less sats because now they didn't have to spend and they didn't have to pay that same level of capital gains tax that they otherwise would have had to, right? Yeah, 100%. That's how we think about so we think about our entire platform, which is we want our clients to have as much Bitcoin as possible. Our clients having as much Bitcoin as possible is good for Unchained, it's good for them. Um, and when we 
when we think about you know scenarios where it's a reason why we've lowered LTV is like we do not like clients getting Bitcoin liquidated and being uneducated of the risks uh, is not good for Unchained. Um, and we've actually had a number of clients that came through that said that they they actually chose Unchained because we we did reduce the the LTV. That they looked at that and they said that's not what somebody would do if they were if they were trying to drive loan volume. Um, and and we did it you know particularly in the world where we're not rehypothecating any collateral. To, to really help our clients protect themselves by forcing them to be more conservative. Uh, but then when we think about our whole platform, it's this idea of we are Bitcoiners, we have needs ourselves, we, we want to have better ways to secure our Bitcoin, and then we have needs as Bitcoiners. And if we're devel- delivering value, it is allowing in many ways, more than one, our clients to hold on to Bitcoin and to, to maximize the value of it. And, and loans are just one small part that the custody is a big part. We help people execute on the OTC side, buying and selling. Um, we, we actually don't sell, but but we have, you know, in, in a certain few, few instances for, for clients that were only set up with us. Uh, but that's how we think about the platform. And, and, and we think about our loans as a tool, again, if used correctly and people need to understand the risk, we've got a guide that we call the ultimate guide to Bitcoin-backed loans that everyone should read before they take out an unchained loan, that if you know the risk and if you do it conservatively, it can be a very powerful tool. Um, if, if you don't do it conservatively and you don't understand the risk, um, you can get wrecked. And, and we don't want clients to do that. Of course, yeah. And I guess one other point for listeners who might be thinking, well, okay, so it's kind of between 11 or 14%. I mean, the actual rates are on the site, but hypothetically, if they wanted to, if they were comfortable with a more, with the rates moving around a little bit, I guess they could go for a shorter term, but just keep rolling it over, correct? Correct. Yeah. And also from an international perspective, obviously Unchained is based in the US. Um, Can you spell out any additional consideration there for people who want to do that internationally? Yeah, so um, we do, one, we facilitate custody internationally. So if people just want collaborative custody and want to work with Unchained, we can help them. Uh, we do we do lend in certain international markets. Not many today are really focused on the U.S., but but we do, um, we do lend in Australia um, and we do lend in Canada. Uh, we're, we're looking at other jurisdictions uh, and we have lent in others beyond there, but we've really looked at it on a case-by-case basis. Uh, but but really, uh, people's expectations should be you know, beyond the United States, Canada, and Australia, where um, we're, we're not really available beyond those markets on the lending side. But then again, on the customer side, we can help people. Gotcha. Of course. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, yeah. And I think it's also just interesting that um, as the world is moving into a more Bitcoinized world, I think, I mean, I've often commented on this, that I think we're moving into a more equity-based world. But just right now, we're living in a very debt-based world. And so this is almost like the the judo move of using the fiat system uh, to fund your, uh, whether whether it's your business or your living expenses and things like that in the here and now, while still holding on to more of the thing, you know, the, the game of musical chess and you want to be holding bitcoins when the music stops um but i guess over time do you see it like you think interest rates on these kinds of loans might come down over time or what what do you do you have any speculation on that or if you're allowed to comment publicly or not yeah i mean i i'll happy to comment publicly the i expect them to come down but i don't expect them to come down like people think they'll come down because more capital and, and more um i think institutions are becoming comfortable with not only holding bitcoin but then also 
running against it as more capital will drive down those rates and and we're we're incentivized we're incentivized just as Nidig announced today that they were reducing the fees on their on their uh, Bitcoin their their fund uh, Bitcoin fund for institutions um, we're in, we're we're incentivized to go out and find cheaper sources of capital and and pass those on to our clients if we're not doing that we're not doing our job at the same time there is a reality that as more people start to appreciate the beauty of Bitcoin and just how valuable these things called Bitcoin are, that that creates competitive pressure as to people. I think about it as for every dollar that is going to one of our borrowers, that is somebody that's foregoing the right to own Bitcoin themselves. And that there is this natural relationship that as people get more comfortable with providing capital to lend against Bitcoin, the more likely they are to want to own Bitcoin. And that it's not necessarily an equation while someone's looking at it as, well, is this as good a collateral as a, as a home? It's actually better should the rate be lower, theoretically, but the person also has the opportunity to buy the Bitcoin and the person isn't just going to buy the home. Um, and so that 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 reality of, of what the loan means, that it is effectively a, a forward currency rate uh, and the fact that Bitcoin has so, so much stronger monetary properties than the dollar, that uh, that people kind of get wise to, to not wanting to give up the, the future asymmetry that's in Bitcoin themselves. Not to say that they don't, they will, and, and, and there will be more capital, but the reality is that that will buoy the rate of interest, that rather than seeing something like 3 or 4%, again, if Bitcoin isn't being rehypothecated, if it was just a true rate of interest, that, that, that reality that what's happening on the other side is that someone's foregoing the right to gain more Bitcoin for the fact that you get to keep it as a borrower um, dictates that the, the rates will come down, but I, I don't I expect them to be in high, high single digits rather than, than low double digits, but not, you know, kind of dropping to a manipulated world where, and again, I have to reiterate for people, a mortgage for a super wealthy person is only 3% via monetary manipulation. Um, and in the Bitcoin world, everything is inherently non-manipulated and is, is really set by the, the free market. So it, it's difficult to envision a world where we get to something crazy like you know, two to three percent interest rates to borrow against Bitcoin. Yeah, that's really fascinating to think about, and I think you had a really great answer on that point. I, and yeah, I wonder what happens. I mean, looking further out into the future, into this kind of in a, in a more Bitcoinized world, I think yeah, maybe you know, loans won't be that easy to come by. Like it, it, once we are in a fully Bitcoinized world, obviously that's that's a ways off, right? But I think it's we have to remember that loans right now are only so cheap because of all the fiat manipulation. Yeah. Yeah, in many ways and in many markets. And in Bitcoin, it just happens to be more, I'd say the opportunity cost is more direct. Because if you think about a lender and imagine whatever context they're lending in, high yield credit, you know, kind of junk bonds, triple C credit, mortgage-backed securities, CMBS, investment grade, treasury, whatever you want to think about. The, the person that's probably adding the lending capital literally doesn't want to own the underlying asset. That will be different in Bitcoin. It already is today. Um, and so because Bitcoin is just a better form of money and everybody needs money. And as more people think about it as that, the more they, they come in, oftentimes they think about it as a credit instrument, but then they get more comfortable with that type of lending. They love it. And then they're like, oh, wait, what if I had just owned Bitcoin? What if I had owned 10% of Bitcoin? You know, so so those just those natural considerations just just buoy interest rates in in this market more so than they do in any other because the lenders inherently because bitcoin is money they're going to be owning the money themselves too um they're, they're going to want to own the underlying asset 
Yeah, it's really funny when you put it that way because it's almost like you want, uh, like hypothetically, right? Just just talking it out, right? It's almost like as a customer on these kinds of loan products, you want the other side to be really interested to lend for Bitcoin, but not to go buy it themselves. <laughs> because once they've gotten to that point of wanting to buy it themselves, and then now there's actually less availability for you to borrow. So it's a funny... Uh... Right. Yeah. And, and that's, what, that's, that's what makes a market, right? That, that the interest rate gets set on that kind of finding that balance where somebody is willing to forego their right to, to just buy it outright versus charge somebody an interest and then use that interest to buy Bitcoin. Um, and and that, that we find a balance or equilibrium in what we call, you know, our interest rate. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. Uh, so probably a good spot to wrap up here. Parker, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Obviously, before we let you go, where can listeners follow you online? So you can check us out on our website. We got a new URL, um, www.unchained.com. Um, and then also you can, so all the things that I've written about, the article that we were talking about earlier, that Bitcoin is a great definancialization, it's on our blog uh, under our resources there. But there's also a lot of product resources as well. And then uh, if not at our website, you can reach me on Twitter. Um, I've got laser eyes and I'm at Parker A. Lewis. Excellent. Thank you, Parker. Thanks, Stefan. Always a pleasure. So if you enjoyed that and you're getting good value out of this, I'd really appreciate if you share the show with your family and friends or share it on social media, as well as leave any reviews on any podcatcher platforms you have. That obviously helps new people find me. You can also get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 263 for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in the Citadels. Mm-hmm.